Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 107. Today we are going to continue in the message that we started on Sunday morning about Savior and Lord. And we mentioned Sunday morning in verse 20 of Psalm 107 that he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And we also mentioned that there are people who never get victory through doctrine, but they live in the same problems for years. And there's a reason why at least some of them, many of them, do not get this victory. And it's because there is no practical application of faith. They hear, but they don't do. When Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, and you do not do what I tell you? Now, when that happens, we're making a choice that we sometimes don't realize that we make. Because in 2 Corinthians 6.14, there is no fellowship between righteousness and iniquity. There is no communion between light and darkness. So there is no middle ground between the two kingdoms, despite the fact that sometimes people want to live as though there was a middle ground. And they say to themselves that there is a middle ground. But they're deceiving themselves. There is no middle ground. I'm either drawing near to the kingdom of God or I'm drawing near to Satan's kingdom. That's just the way it works. The default condition of not drawing near to the kingdom of God is drawing near to Satan's kingdom. There is no middle ground. And also we mentioned that in Isaiah 8.19... God talks about those who have familiar spirits. And they says, should not people seek their own God rather than these familiar spirits? Dr. Stevens defined familiar spirits. His is the best definition that I know of. And he said, a familiar spirit is a spirit that mutters that is engaged at least in one of five behaviors. This is his definition. And these behaviors are passivity, murmuring, complaining, reacting negatively, or refusing to obey. Now, this is what I mean when I say, they that will not apply the practicalities of doctrine that would build their faith, but they don't utilize in a faith-obedient response the Word of God that has been imparted to them. That's what it means. They refuse to obey. And he continues in his definition, it means to utter sounds because of close atmospheric contact with a personality from the air. Now, it's also important for us, and this is not a part of his definition, that we understand that familiarity and familiar spirits are not the same thing. Familiarity is an attitude of the heart. A familiar spirit is a category of demon. 
So when we're talking about familiar spirits, we're actually talking about demons that influence people into passivity, influence them into murmuring, complaining, influence them into reacting negatively, and influence them into refusing to obey. A person who has a familiar spirit started out without a familiar spirit very often. And when that happens, they get locked into that spirit because Jesus said, once you clean the house and the spirit leaves, but if nothing replaces it, if nothing fills that space, if the person does not develop their life with God, then seven more powerful demons return with that spirit. And it really becomes very, very difficult for that person to get out. Now, there is a way to get out, and that's really going to be the focus of what we're talking about today, the answer to the familiar spirit. Usually, people will not escape familiar spirits. Some people will spend an entire lifetime being under the direct influence and government of demonic familiar spirits. But the Word of God says in Romans 10.12 that Christ is Lord over all. He is the Lord over all. If I walk away from Him being the Lord, yes, I accept Him as my Savior, and indeed that person very well may be saved. They may be going to heaven when they die, but in their practical function, they're operating under the authority and thereby influence of a demon, a familiar spirit, that familiar spirit may not necessarily appear wicked and hostile in the way that we often think of demons. Some demons actually appear friendly. Some of them appear like they're going to help you. Some of them appear like they're going to kind of reason with you and come on, let's walk through it. And they're very difficult for people who are influenced by them to identify because they appeal to the natural mind very strongly and it's very difficult for that person to discern the influence of the demon versus simple natural thinking. However, if I am drawing near to the government of God, then I am withdrawing from Satan's government and Satan's influence. If I am not drawing near to the government of God, then by default, I am drawing near to Satan's government and Satan's influence. There are no other options. There is no other middle ground. These are the two kingdoms Everything is a matter of one of these two kingdoms and much of what goes on in life is a battle between those two kingdoms. And so don't say to yourself ever, well, I still love God, but I'm going to live in this problem and I'm not going to apply doctrine to this area of my life because quite frankly, I'm too comfortable to do so. I recently heard Dr. Stevens say, if you have anger issues, then you are playing God. You are trying to manipulate people, 
scare them with your temper, with your anger, and you are trying to take the place of God in their life. That is a familiar spirit. But the person will say, oh, I'm not after a spirit. I'm not worshiping demons. I'm not going after anything like that. I'm just having a period of time where I'm a little bit in my flesh, perhaps. But you know what? You don't have the option. You can say to yourself, oh, you're like, oh, I'm just in my flesh. But you're actually under the authority and government of familiar spirits, which are demons. You're under a demonic government, even though you don't want to admit that to yourself. That's what it is. There's only the two governments. You're not one of them. Now, if I am under the authority for whatever reason, in whatever way, whether it's passivity, whether it's disobedience, whether it's negative reactions and complaining and murmuring, what have you, first of all, you have to recognize, without condemnation, but proper, correct self-evaluation before God to help you adjust where you need adjusting, that you are under the influence of demons. You're not the only person there, you're not the first, you're not the last, but you are under the influence of demons. So the question then becomes, how do you get out from the influence of these demons? Because invariably the people who have these familiar spirits, the people who are under this demonic influence, are not happy people. They are not experiencing the superabundant life that Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that he came to give believers. At best, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel on occasion and then it goes downhill from there. You don't have to live that way. You live that way because you've made decisions to. And those decisions are what open the door to the familiar spirit, these demons, to come in and influence you. But you don't have to live that way, nor do you have to continue to live that way. But I'll tell you right now, and I'll give you a word of warning, if you wish to get out from under the influence of demons, it needs to be a once and for all decision. You will not take back. You will not go back. Because if you do, your condition, your situation will become far worse. So if you're not going to mean business with God, just admit it, I'm not going to mean business with God. Cut your losses, do what you can, but don't pretend. Don't get religious lying to yourself in a system of self-righteousness through a self-defined morality whereby you tell yourself you're okay with God when you're not okay, but you're sort of okay, at least you're not demonic. That is an error. 
You are under the influence of demons. Mark my words. Thus says the Lord. There is no fellowship with righteousness and iniquity. Iniquity is self-orientation. There is no fellowship with righteousness and self-orientation. There is no communion between light and darkness. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have a middle ground. They don't exist. There are two kingdoms only. And you don't get to pick except through which kingdom you will obey. If you're not obeying God's kingdom, then by default you are obeying Satan's kingdom. Just how it works. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. This is your solution to familiar spirits. The solution is not to become more religious, nor is it to put yourself under some system of legalism or laws. It's not in striving or in performing. It's in coming to the high priest, Jesus, and when you do that, then you have a doorway out of Satan's kingdom. Seeing that we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. That's kratomen. And it means to have power over. It's not just holding in your hand. It's more than that. It's to have power over. It's to have rule over. So you have power over. You have rule over your confession. Confession is homologeo. And it's saying the same thing. That's what it means. Saying the same thing. Agreement. You have power over your agreement. You have power over the same confession as who? As your high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. You have that ability, you have that power, you have that authority. That is yours by virtue of your free volition. In Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in order to have the same confession, the same speech, in order to have this agreement, it necessarily requires for me to have the same thought because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Well, if I have the same thought as the Savior, then I'm living by the faith of the Son of God in Galatians 
It's his faith because it's his thought. That is specified in Romans 10.17 when it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Word there is not a general proclamation. It is a specific thought. It's the Holy Spirit imparting the word of God in specifics to your life. Maybe the Holy Spirit will encourage you in an area where you need encouragement. Maybe the Holy Spirit will instruct you in an area where you need instruction. Maybe the Holy Spirit will comfort you in an area where you need comfort. Maybe the Holy Spirit will convict you in an area where you need conviction. Whatever it is, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you in specifics. And it happens in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 most frequently when the Spirit speaks to the churches, in other words, within the local assembly. When that takes place, and I mix faith in Hebrews chapter 4 with what I hear, then it starts to build me, it starts to profit me, then I start to get something out of it. The thing that I get out of it is faith. The same confession is the same thought. The same thought in my mind as in the mind of Christ is the bottom line most practical definition of faith. I think with God. That's faith. I think with the Word of God. That's faith. The things that the Holy Spirit imparts to me, I think with them. That's faith. Then it continues, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you understand that when you have a weakness, you have a failure, when there's sin in your life, Jesus Christ is sympathetic toward you. In John chapter 8 and verse 11, when the woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus by the Pharisees who wanted to stone her, Jesus, albeit he did not compromise with her sin, was sympathetic toward her. The reason why he was sympathetic toward her, number one, is because the Pharisees themselves were sinners, just as wicked a sinner as she was, and probably even more so in some cases. Number two, and this was revealed by him drawing in the dirt. People made a big deal out of what it is that he wrote in the dirt when his finger was in there. It makes no difference whatsoever. Any speculation on that is merely speculation. It wasn't about what he wrote. It was about the fact that his hand was back in the dirt, just like it was when he created Adam in Genesis 2.7. Now, there was a specific point to that because in the original meaning of Genesis 2.7, the word Adam and the word ground both mean to show blood. It was well understood in the days of Melchizedek that the blood of Christ was part of the substance of everything. This is shown to us in Revelation 13.8 
when the slain lamb was the structural foundation of the world, the slaying of the lamb consisted of the cross and the blood. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us, who will not condemn us. That woman, caught in the very act of adultery, Jesus refused. Not that he just wouldn't. He absolutely refused to condemn her. And those people who would condemn her, he sent them away with conviction. He didn't rebuke them because according to the law, they were correct. They were living by the letter of the law, but they were not living by the Spirit of God. But, according to the letter of the law, they were correct. Moses did say that she was to be stoned. That was not love, that was law. Jesus came to completely fulfill the law and to put an end to the law. So he was looking for love, not law. They were administrating law, not love. So, the third point of it is that after he sent away your accusers, after he made a point of it that he was relating to her according to the way she was created with her design and purpose, not according to her sin, but according to the fact that part of her structure was the blood of Christ that removes all sin. He then said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, No man, Lord. He said, I don't accuse you either. Did he compromise with her sin? No. He said, Go and sin no more. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to remember your sin. The blood of Christ removes your sin as far as the east is from the west in Psalm 103.12, which is another way of saying from time. He is very sympathetic toward us. In our worst estate, sometimes people wonder, how can God be so patient and allow these terrible, wicked, evil people To do these terrible, wicked, evil things. Nobody is debating that those things are terrible, wicked, evil. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Those people are puppets. They're pawns. They're clueless as to what they're actually doing. So you can be extremely sympathetic toward those who Satan is taking severe advantage of. Yes, their volition is a part of it. But then show me one person who has not fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. He was tempted, that is to say tested. He was not tempted to sin. He was not tempted the way that we are tempted. He was not tempted to buy a Cadillac. But he was tested. In every manner that we are, he was tried, he was tested. Realize that temptation sometimes comes as a test. That's why it's permitted in the first place. 
So he was tested in every single point in the very same quality of testing that we are. Okay, now, the word as, tempted as, is the word kata. Kata means down from or according to. And yet he was without sin. That word without is chorus. It means apart and separated from. Here's the thing. This is saying that he was tempted in the exact same way as we are because we are tempted. He was tried and tested exactly like we are because we are tried and tested. So it wasn't just a coincidence. It's not, oh, he was tempted just like you are, so now, okay, he understands you, he gets it. That's a superficial way of looking at it. He chose to undergo those trials because we undergo those trials. He chose to allow himself in Matthew 4 to be tempted by Satan because we get tempted by Satan. He chose to allow himself to be tried through rejection because we are tried through rejection. All the testings that Jesus faced, which are just as we face them, he faced them because we face them. He chose it because he wanted to be a high priest who sympathizes, who understands, and he of course understands, but in a practical sense, so that we could relate to him as someone who knows how we feel, someone who knows what it is to go through these things, someone who has had the practical experience that we've had. And so he chose to undergo those experiences. It was really a tremendous act of love. And then it continues in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly. Boldly is pro circometa. And it means confident assurance allowing for openness and plainness of speech. You ever meet somebody or hear somebody? You hear this perhaps most often. They'll pray using the old English. They use the these and thous and shouts and all this, these old English words and endings. They speak in 1600s English. Why? Because they don't get this part, perhaps, in some cases anyway. Come boldly. Have enough confident assurance in Christ who gets you, who completely understands you, who knows who you are, who knows where you are. He sat where you sit. He completely sympathizes with you. So have enough confident assurance to simply speak to him plainly. 
Don't try to sugarcoat your words because it's God. Don't try to sound religious to God. Speak plainly with God. I'll never forget Colton Burpo's dad. Colton Burpo, he's the one that that book, Heaven is for Real, is about. When he died on the operating table, and his father, who was a pastor, was so deeply hurt by that, that he went into a broom closet because still he was a pastor, he didn't want people to hear him. And he started screaming at God. And God's response was, your father is praying. God wasn't concerned with the wording or even the tone. God recognized the plain language of it, of this is the sound of pain. That's how God is with us. He sympathizes and he recognizes the sound. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, where it says we are a savor unto God, our prayers are taken to God as an incense. He recognizes the aroma of the prayer. And that aroma communicates to him. This is how God is. We're different. We look at the outward. We look at the sound of things. We look at, oh, this is God and I have to be holy. No, God isn't like that. God says, come to me, be plain, be ordinary, be bold, be confident and have assurance that you're going to be heard and accepted because I get it. I've been there. I get it. A person has familiar spirits, let's say. They're demonically influenced. Jesus was so incredibly attacked by demons in the Garden of Gethsemane that he perspired blood. He gets what it means to be attacked by demons. He gets what it means that Satan has a strategy. He gets what it means that there's opposition. He gets what it means when rejection comes or something else that's very difficult for us. He gets it. So be bold and be confident and come to him with assurance because he doesn't want you coming with a religious mindset. He wants you coming plainly. Just be yourself. Be open with him. He knows it anyway, so be open with him. Be honest before him. When I come in that fashion, I come to the throne of grace. Now, throne is the word throno. And it is a throne as the emblem of royal authority. And so I'm not just coming to a place where Jesus sits. And I'm not coming to something vague. I'm literally coming to the throne 
where Jesus is seated and that throne is the emblem of his authority. That means I'm coming to a government. The whole problem with unclean spirits was that I walked away from a government and now I am coming back to God's government. The throne of grace is God's government. So I come back with boldness. I don't come back all timid. Oh God, I made these mistakes and I rejected and I did all this and I was under the influence of demons and now I would like to come back. Oh, will you ever have me? No, I come back boldly with confident assurance and I come back to his governing authority of grace. Now, the grace that it's talking about there, it is a government and the authority of that government implements two specific policies. In verse 7 of Ephesians 2, it implements a policy of kindness. In the following verse, verse 8, it implements a policy of unmerited favor. The government comes first. The government implements these policies. If I am to receive the kindness of God, it is only because I've come to the government of God. I've come to the authority of Christ and I yielded myself under His authority. Now because I am under His authority, I can receive things like forgiveness. I can receive mercy. I can receive kindness. I can receive gentleness. I can receive all his goodness. I can receive all his provisions because I've yielded myself with my volition to his governmental authority in my life. And that's where I find help in time of need. Now, that phrase, help in time of need, need is the word eukairos, and it doesn't necessarily mean need. It means Opportune times. It means well-selected timing. This is more than a time of need. It's well-timed. That's what it means. It's well-timed for any situation or any occasion, any type of circumstance. Positive, negative, doesn't make any difference. It's well-timed help that I receive from the authority and the government of God when I come to the throne of grace, when I yield myself to his government. Finding mercy or finding help can only take place at the throne of grace. It's God's throne. It's God's governmental authority in my life. If I have God's governmental authority in my life, if I'm yielded, if I'm obedient to the authority of the Word of God, God said it, I do it. If I have this, if God's Word is the government of my life, not in legalism, but in the Holy Spirit guiding me in all truth in John 16, 13, and I have a faith-obedient response, then I am under that government, then I am in a place where I can receive mercy, where I can receive kindness, where I can receive His goodness, all the benefits of God come 
when he is Lord, when he is in charge, and I put him in charge. That's the thing about it. I put him in charge. God's government is not his imposing a standard on me. God's government is me with my free volition choosing to yield and to obey him. Then he is my Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I'm telling you, Jesus said. He said it, I do it. End of story. He said it, I do it. Whatever it is, he said it, I do it. Faith, obedience. Oh, I don't know if I have the capacity to do it. No, you don't have the will. Capacity is frequently the maturity to have a will. He said it, I do it. Simple as that. In Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The word righteousness there is dikaiosuni. And it means conformity to the claims of a higher authority and stands in opposition to iniquity. So righteousness is conformity to that which is told me by a higher authority, Christ himself, and it stands in opposition to self-orientation. Remember, self-orientation in itself is a government in Psalm 94.20. There is a throne of iniquity that is Satan's government. It is a government of self-orientation. And so, the government of God, righteousness, stands in opposition to self-orientation and it is conformity to his authority. Well, no wonder the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The authority of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith comes by hearing. That's the first faith. Faith that comes by hearing. The second faith is faith obedience. I hear, I receive, I trust, I act. I receive and then my volition chooses. That process brings me under God's government. That is the throne of grace. The policy of the throne of grace is kindness. The policy of the throne of grace is unmerited favor. But the way that I get under the authority of God is by receiving and then obeying. He says something and I obey it. I don't just try to apply the general word, that which is proclaimed. A lot of people try to apply generalized doctrine and they enter into a system of morality and their life becomes about morality and they don't understand spirituality, therefore, they don't understand the Holy Spirit guiding them in all truth they have a generalized doctrine and then they try to apply a generalized doctrine. That doesn't work for you. You get religious when you try it that way. He's not after people being religious. The Holy Spirit
Spirit guides you in all truth and he builds your faith with rhema, specifics from the word of God for your particular life. He's not looking for you to apply generalized doctrine. He's looking for you to respond in faith and faith obedience to specifics that the Holy Spirit communicates to you as the word of God is proclaimed. He walks among the candlesticks. He's going from believer to believer and he's examining their hearts and he's taking that word and he's speaking to them with the generalized word to turn it into a specific word from the Holy Spirit as the preacher is receiving and then passing on what he has received for the churches. Therein is the throne of grace. We often receive, but we don't always obey. Obedience is what God is looking for. Saul lost his kingdom. He made sacrifices, but he wouldn't obey. And Samuel told him, to obey is better than to sacrifice. God is looking for obedience. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Yes, and so we think, well, I believe him. You don't believe him until you apply it. If it's the word of God and you believe it's the word of God, then you apply it. If you believe it's the word of truth, then you do it. If you believe that God gave the word of God, then you obey it. It's that simple. But people want to say, I believe and then not apply. I believe but not obey. I believe but not implement. You don't believe. That is familiar spirits under the satanic government and that is leading you away from God's kingdom. You can't say he's Lord if you don't obey. Jesus said that in so many words. You cannot call him Lord if you don't obey. And so you obey. I'm not saying obey in legalism. I'm saying obey as the Holy Spirit guides you in all truth. Then you obey. I'm not saying obey the Logos. I'm saying obey the Rhema. I'm saying have a Word of God relationship with God whereby He can speak to you through the Word of God and get you to do what He desires you to do. You obey. I'm not saying you obey in self-defined faith or self-defined obedience. I'm saying you obey the Holy Spirit of God as He brings you guidance. You obey. In Matthew 6.33, you seek first the kingdom of God. Kingdom is Batsilian and it means royal dominion. You obey the government of God and his righteousness in Romans 3.22 which comes by faith and then everything that is keeping you away in your natural thinking from obeying him, the fears, the anxieties, the desires, whatever it is, it's all added to you by the government of God because you've obeyed God. People don't obey God trying to seek things on their own, trying to find their own way, trying to figure it out on their own. 
Well, God won't do it for me. I'm going to have to do it for myself. Well, don't you live in a demonic sort of deception? That's the sure route to misery. Because Satan is not your friend. Some people act like Satan is their friend. Satan is not your friend. Satan is your enemy. So stop cooperating with your enemy who's trying to destroy you. In Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is within you. Within is the word entos and means inside. It's located in your heart, your frame of reference. God's royal dominion is inside the believer in their frame of reference when they live faith to faith. When they receive faith, apply faith and faith obedience, his royal dominion is in their frame of reference. In Exodus 25-21, you shall put the mercy seat above the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony, that is the tablets of the law that Moses brought, that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. The ark itself speaks of the presence of God. But it also is a picture of the believer. Now, the believer has within themselves because the kingdom of God is within them. Three things. And these are the three things that were symbolically placed into the ark. The tablets that contained the testimony, the law, Aaron's rod, and the golden pot with manna. The believer under the authority of God contains the word of God in their heart, in their frame of reference. They have the authority of God and they have the faith provisions of God. If I realize that I have these three things, then iniquity will become extremely dull. Self-orientation will become extremely unappealing. Because when I am under the authority of God, functioning in the government of God, my heart is filled, my frame of reference, with the Word of God, with the mind of Christ in specifics. I thereby have the authority of God, and in faith obedience I have all the provisions that come from God. In Ephesians 1.20, God raised Christ from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. This is the throne of grace. In Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That's the mercy seat. The mercy seat is our place on the throne of grace. 
We are seated above in Christ with Him. We have been raised together with Him. We are there because of our oneness with Him in Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. And also because of the blood of Christ. It's the throne of grace when it relates to God. It's the mercy seat when it relates to us. The mercy seat is our seat and the way that we know that it's our seat was that the blood was placed on the mercy seat. The throne of grace doesn't need the blood. We need the blood. So the blood, when we are with him, turns it into a seat of mercy. And what do we find at the throne of grace? We find mercy. And we don't find mercy as an activity. We find mercy as a resting place. It's the mercy seat that we rest in. Because the throne of grace, manward, as relates to us, is a mercy seat. And we find God there. We do it when we yield in faith obedience to the governmental authority of God. In Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This includes every good and perfect gift which comes from above in James 1.17. And that includes things like healing and every other form of blessing. So you do not go astray in James 1.16. You don't follow familiar spirits by rejecting the authority of God, but rather in faith, application, you obey Him. And when you do so, you come to the throne of grace, you sit in the seat of mercy and you rest there, and you find absolutely everything that you need, every provision, every thought, every bit of wisdom, absolutely everything that you need for your life is found at the throne of grace as you rest in mercy. But you will not find it unless you live in faith obedience as the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to you personally. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me so I can have eternal life with you. Amen.